there's an old story uh, about a married couple celebrating their diamond or 60th wedding anniversary. Some were keen to find out how they managed to stay married happily uh, for so long. So they asked the question. The husband's explanation was quite simple. When we were first married, he said, we came to an agreement. I would make all the major decisions and my wife would make all the minor decisions. At which point his wife took up the tale. And in 60 years of marriage, she added, we have never needed to make a major decision. On another occasion, a woman was invited to attend the burial of a goldfish owned by her five-year-old neighbour. Since Jimmy wasn't yet able to write, he asked her to do the honours for him, handing her a small cardboard tombstone which he had brought with him to the ceremony. What do you want to say? she asked. Why did the fish make you so happy? His name, Jimmy replied, was Mobut. Do you want to add anything else? At which Jimmy thought for a moment before he said he was fun while he lasted. But happiness or even good clean fun are not always easy to define, are they? If I were to ask you the secret of happiness this morning, you may want to think how you might reply because there are many possible answers out there. For most, I would suspect, loving relationships would come pretty near the top of the list of prerequisites, but so might a certain level of material security. For many, good health would be important. Others might stress more idealistic concerns. Yet turn on the TV and you could be forgiven for concluding that happiness consists in having nothing less than a perfect house, a perfect family, whatever that is, a perfect car, and above all on American TV, perfect teeth. And even when we we see through the the phony baloney of all these commercials, we can easily be attracted, can't we, by the thought of that million dollar, or should I now say in Vancouver, ten million dollar home, with a white picket fence, that eighty thousand dollar vehicle, Freedom 55 on early retirement. I'm still looking for that. Or even the flawless physique that the ad men so often try to sell us. If we only had all that, or at least some of it, then surely then we would be really happy. The irony is that while images of the so-called good life or happy life are being sold to us like there's no tomorrow, millions of North Americans are actually depressed and dissatisfied. For all too many, it's almost as if 
we live in, in some kind of split screen universe of impossible dreams on one level and the harsher reality of everyday life for many others on another. And we sometimes forget that in the church we just don't need to buy into the media stereotypes at all. We have our own vision and understanding of happiness which is very different in many ways from a lot of what they have to offer. Certainly when we read the first 12 verses of Matthew 5 today we can quickly find ourselves on uncommon ground as we consider the setting, the significance and the source of what have traditionally been known as Jesus' wonderful Beatitudes, the Beatitudes. To start with the setting, this is important because the Beatitudes come at the beginning of Matthew's account of a very important collection of Jesus' teachings which we now know as the Sermon on the Mount, right near the start of his public ministry. Jesus gathers his disciples and many others on a mountainside and he teaches them, in effect, how to live. He talks about such basic topics as the rule of law, murder, adultery, divorce, oath-taking, revenge, giving, fasting, prayer and so much more besides. And in the process, he really lays down some of the foundations of his approach to Christian morality. But how does he begin? Rather like Moses coming down from Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus with his Ten Commandments, Jesus gives us some very clear principles. But they're not, they don't take the form of Ten Commandments, eight Beatitudes. So let's explore these famous words in more detail and see what they can tell us about the significance of Jesus' teachings, the significance. The eight main statements which Jesus makes in the Beatitudes basically have that name because each begins with the Greek word makarios, which the Latin Vulgate Bible, which was the main translation used by the Catholic Church for centuries, translated as Beatus. And that is where the word Beatitude comes from. And the standard English translation for that is blessed, of course. But there's an immediate challenge here, because as commentator Dick France observed, This original Greek word doesn't really denote one whom God blesses. It denotes someone who's to be congratulated. Someone whose place in life is an enviable one. So a better translation of blessed might be fortunate or well off or even what the Good News Bible uses, happy. Happy. It's also important to stress that Jesus isn't talking about how people feel in these verses, but about how they are, about what France called a condition of life. In other words, Jesus is giving us a list of eight types of people 
who are happy in the sense of fortunate because of their situation. They may not sense that they're particularly privileged. They may feel exactly the opposite, but they are. And Jesus proceeds to tell us why. According to author Wayne Keller, Jim Crane, in one of his cartoon books, shows two men who have everything that money can buy as they sit there on top of the world, wherever that is. One asks, why aren't we happy when we've got so much? Why aren't we happy when we've got so much? That's a poignant question, if you think about it, and one that many in Vancouver today could surely echo. In one of Charles Schwartz's Peanuts strips, Linus asks Charlie Brown, what would you say you want the most out of life? To be happy? Oh no, Charlie responds. I don't really expect that. I just don't want to be unhappy. I just don't want to be unhappy. How many do you know in your networks who might say exactly the same thing? And one of the problems, I suspect, is that we've often become so conditioned to equating happiness with feeling good, with, with avoiding pain and suffering of any kind. So our vision of being happy is anything that's supposed to achieve that, from financial independence, whatever that means, to mindless bliss in a trouble-free universe. But however pleasant or appealing, this kind of picture doesn't have much to do with reality for most people in the world, of course. Still less with what Jesus has in mind. Uh, Let me try to clarify some of his terms briefly as we think about some of these people whom Jesus classes as blessed or fortunate or happy in verses 3 through 10. Blessed are the poor in spirit, who are they? Basically those who humbly trust God, whatever their circumstances. Blessed are those who mourn, not just those who are grieving, but those who suffer generally for whatever reason. Blessed are the meek. Those who look to God for vindication, rather than seeking to exact it themselves. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart or those who single-mindedly pursue God's will. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Let me read Jesus' list again. But this time substituting the word happy for blessed. And as I do that, you may want to think about how this version compares with others. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the meek. Happy are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness. Happy are the merciful. Happy are the pure in heart. Happy are the peacemakers. Happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Now, I don't know about you, but when Jesus talks about the blessedness or the happiness of those who hunger and thirst 
the righteousness or of the merciful, the pure in heart or the peacemakers I don't struggle with what he means quite so much after all we all know that those are good things to be and it seems reasonable to expect that God will bless us in them but what about the poor in spirit or the meek surely in the world's eyes they're only asking for trouble if you don't stand up for yourself how can you expect to receive your dues and how can those who mourn or are persecuted ever be counted blessed surely their situation is more to be pitied and avoided Yet it's precisely when we ask such questions I think that we're also getting to the heart of the matter because Jesus challenges us most often it's when that happens that his words have most to teach us. And the key to understanding his teachings here I think lies in the things that are promised to the blessed or the happy whom he holds up as examples for us which brings us to my next point and the surprise of the Beatitudes the surprise of the Beatitudes the obvious question is why are the poor in spirit or those who humbly trust God blessed for theirs is the kingdom of heaven what is the promise to those who mourn or suffer that they will be comforted why are the meek so fortunate because they will inherit the earth what lies in store for those who hunger and thirst after righteousness that they will be filled why are the pure in heart in such an enviable position for they will see God what's the reward for the peacemakers that they will be called children of God why are those who suffer persecution so well placed for theirs is the kingdom of heaven so every statement has a promise attached to explain what Jesus means and if we pull them all together I see a consistent theme throughout because who can give the kingdom of heaven to the poor in spirit and to the persecuted who can enable the meek to inherit the earth there's only one possible answer if you think about it and that's God we can all be of help that's what a healthy Christian community does but who can fully comfort those who mourn and fill those who hunger and thirst for after righteousness only God who can show ultimate life changing mercy to the merciful only God last but not least who can enable the peacemakers to be called children of God or the pure in heart to see God obviously only God in person in other words all the blessings that are promised to the blessed or the happy in Jesus Beatitudes they all flow from and they depend on God and they can only be found in relationship with Jesus Christ what is more some of these promises may not be realized in our present lives at all if you think about them 
We can clearly enjoy a measure of God's comfort and mercy and righteousness this side of eternity. But when can the meek expect to inherit the earth? When will we see God face to face? When will we enjoy the kingdom of heaven and all God's other blessings in their fullness? Ultimately, in heaven, after we die or Jesus returns. So when Jesus talks about happiness or blessedness, he has in mind a much bigger picture than so many of the cheap thrills or instant gratifications that are so often touted as answers to people's problems today. He's stressing the importance of a relationship with God that will last forever and he's saying that the benefits that we will derive from that will far outweigh any of the problems, any of the sufferings that we now have to endure. How can we find true happiness How can we come to a place where our lives are truly blessed? Only by knowing and loving the one true God who can give us everything that we need. So the key here is not the shifting circumstances of our lives or the challenges that we will inevitably face. It's the presence of and the undying faithfulness of God, whatever we're going through. And in human terms, some of us may not feel very happy at all right now. Jesus promises, whatever whatever our longings, whatever our sufferings in our faith, and they may be many, God will satisfy it. God will answer them. Things may not feel great where we are now, But that's not really the point. In the eternal scheme of things, God has more in store for us than we could ever dream or imagine and it's this same God that we now have the privilege of knowing and serving as we seek to follow Jesus day by day. So although they may not always seem that way, the Beatitudes are actually tremendously encouraging. And it's perhaps... Particularly appropriate on this weekend when we celebrate the best of Canada. When we remember the gifts and legacies of those who have gone before, that we should remember the promise of heaven and all that means to us. But I want to close by focusing on the more immediate benefits of the Christian faith and what Jesus' keys to happiness can mean for us right here, right now. Harold Lentz tells the story of William James, the great psychologist of religion and philosopher, who was thought of by many in his day, particularly towards the end of his life, as a happy and contented man. But after his death, some who knew him were amazed to learn from his letters that in his earlier years, he suffered long periods of melancholy or depression. He would go through extended periods when he felt that his life was useless and meaningless. His son admitted that during one entire winter James was constantly on the verge of suicide. But he apparently 
manage to overcome this? And how? In a quotation from his essay, Is Life Worth Living? He gives us this clue, and I quote, My final appeal is to nothing more recondite or difficult than religious faith. My final appeal is to nothing more difficult than religious faith. It's too much to claim, that, as Lentz does, I think, that James ever became an orthodox Christian. But even the possibility of faith in God opened up whole new vistas of hope and optimism in his life. And there have been so many others down through the centuries who have experienced deep changes for the better when they truly come to faith. I've already shared part of my testimony here at Ebenezer back in January. And I can honestly say that Jesus has made all the difference. When I first came to faith, I was confused. Rather negative and self-destructive individual who had little optimism about the future despite all the blessings and privileges I already enjoyed. But from March the 31st, 1985, the day I came to faith, all that started to change. And it, and it did so decisively as Christ has brought fresh meaning and purpose and given me a whole new outlook on life. And I'm sure that my story is just one among many here today of those whose lives have been and are being transformed by the grace of God. God promises us great things in heaven, yes, and the Beatitudes remind us that we can't always expect a bed of roses in the meantime. But God does change things for the better here and now. God does offer us joy and peace and security in this life. And the key to those blessings is found in a relationship. A living, loving relationship with God. I've only been here a couple of weeks now. Some of you may have noticed. So I can't presume to say where you all are spiritually, emotionally, or in many other ways, for that matter. Some may feel great, but I suspect that some, at least, don't feel at your best. You may be wondering how you're going to find the strength and resources to cope with what's coming your way. You may be anxious about situations at work, at home, at school, even here, at church, it has been known. But one thing that I can tell you is that God is ready to meet you exactly where you are and to give you all that you need to strengthen and sustain you. I'm also confident that God has positive plans for everyone and that God wants to do new and wonderful things in our lives and those of others through us. So in that sense... Matthew 5 invites us all to bring our personal concerns, our anxieties to God, to lay them at the foot of the cross and to prepare to meet Christ in communion later in today's service because God is present by the Holy Spirit to change hearts, to change lives beginning with us. God is here. God is always here 
to help those who are ready to see their need for Christ and to turn to him. And when they do, when we do as a community, God promises the kind of blessedness, even happiness, true and lasting happiness, which we simply can't find anywhere else. Let's bow our heads.